But 0.1% of the time, the world is going to be told to stay indoors. 0.01% of the time, banks are going to be bankrupt. 0.01% of the time, something's going to happen that means that your best laid plans are going to go wrong. And you need to, if you want to live your life and survive those things, then you need to have the wherewithal and the savings and the understanding that allow you to survive those things. And in order to counteract that, you therefore also need to be investing in the upside things, because whilst things can go very wrong unexpectedly, things can also go incredibly right unexpectedly. And you need to be in a position to capitalize on those as well. And that's what risk management is really about. Hello and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast with me, Steve Ingham. Now, this podcast is all about exploring the dynamics of high performance with people who have been there and done it, people who have supported others to succeed or have explored performance concepts in real depth. If you're feeling like supporting and championing us, then please do leave a review on iTunes. Now, in today's episode, I speak to Casper Berry. Now, Casper is a former professional poker player, having been the poker advisor also on the James Bond movie Casino Royale. Casper is now a speaker on risk and decision making, not only understanding this area from the principles of the game of poker, but underpinned with an economics degree from Cambridge University. In this discussion, we talk about the parallels between poker and what we're experiencing through this viral pandemic. And yes, there is definitely a parallel to be heard. We talk about how to get good at poker, which unveils an array of applicable lessons in terms of probabilities, luck, taking opportunities when they're presented and covering that risk. Casper has a knack of making some really unfamiliar concepts feel really accessible. And he is a bright guy with whom I've loved chatting to over the years. And if a Las Vegas poker player and advisor on a Bond movie weren't enough, then Casper has one of the most fun and interesting biographies going, which I will leave him to explain. Well, a very warm welcome to the podcast, Casper. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good. Thanks, Casper. Now, I'm really looking forward to this conversation, not least because of the topic area that you have expertise in, but also we have some great conversations. I've known you over the years and I always enjoy the different tangents that our conversations can just go on off. They digress. Yeah, they, they definitely do that. Now, I don't want to draw like this some crass analogy between a global pandemic and how to play poker. Um, But I'm your topic of interest and and expertise is around risk and decision making. And and I'm acutely aware that, that what we're going through is absolutely squarely in that topic area. So I I'm keen to know what your observations are of what we're going through and whether there's any parallels to be had. So you may not need to ask another question for the whole of this podcast. (laughs) Um, Whilst playing poker is very different to uh, global pandemics, there are just so many things that understanding risk properly reveals about this. So so one of the first places to start is that um, this will be good for business. And I don't mean that. I mean, I mean that um, it is good when people appreciate the role of uncertainty in their lives. So there was a massive marked difference that I noted noticed in 2008. Um, before that date, I literally had to convince people that uncertainty was a thing and that it played any part in their lives. And that the way that I always put it was that once people realized that the money in their current account was not 100% safe, people were a little bit more open to the role of uncertainty in all areas of their lives. So this will perform a very similar role. And the, the consequence of that will be Uh, actually net positive. In fact, you know, we're talking a lot about vaccines at the moment, and obviously vaccines will operate on some sort of principle of inoculation. That is, you get a small dose of something and that makes you immune to much larger doses because your body learns how to deal with it um, and builds up defences. And in some ways, we should see the whole of the corona crisis as something like that. Because as terrible as this is going to be, and millions will die, genuinely millions, um, it won't be 50 to 100 million uh, with any luck. 
And uh, and that's what it could be. You know, swine flu, I think, had a th- or Ebola had a 30 percent death rate. You know, here we're talking anything between half a percent and three percent. Um, and the next one could be 30 percent. And so the more ready we are for the next one, uh, uh, the better, because one of my big points that I've been making for the last 15 years is that capitalism, what we understand as capitalism and our modern history, sort of post-war and actually, you know, post First World War. Uh, literally, because since Spanish flu, has been phenomenally lucky. You're talking about a period of time with no massive super volcanic eruptions, even on the scale of Krakatoa, let alone on the, on the scale of like Yellowstone. Um, you know, no tsunamis impacting, you know, major developed areas. And I'm not for one moment belittling the 2004 tsunami. Um, capitalism, this is the biggest shock that capitalism, as we understand it, has had to endure. And it could be much, much bigger, as, as hard as that is to conceptualize at the moment. So capitalism has been very lucky. And most of the most of the sort of systems and principles that we operate in our world have been developed to deal with this very lucky period. And one of the first impacts of that is that businesses just don't keep enough back. You know, I remember when I was a kid, I lived in Essex, and uh, we had a Marconi factory near us. And uh, I remember my parents talking about old man Marconi, who used to keep a billion uh, pounds in in cash in the company in the days when a billion pounds was a lot of money, and um, and he used to be ridiculed by people. Uh, Apple similarly, you know, has been massively criticised for keeping so much money in cash. But this is actually good principle, good business principle, because although it doesn't seem to generate that much return, it is precisely being kept for a rainy day, and this is a rainy day. Not to brag, I mean genuinely not to brag, but I as a person. Uh, this will cost me a lot of money in terms of lost uh, earnings for a year. No one's holding conferences for a good 12 months as a result of this. But I'm OK because I spend my life reading about catastrophic risks. And so I have enough money saved to stand, you know, four or five years of this. So I'll probably gonna leave it there. There's, there's, there's so much more to say and we, and we will get to it. But but risk is a real thing. People do not appreciate it because the time scale of risk is much more than five years or 10 years or 50 or even 100 years. It's several thousand years of risk. But if you want to have a species called humanity that's going to exist over a time span of several thousand years or millions or whatever it is we have in our brains that we're going to last for, which we're probably not, then you need to be thinking on those timescales for how to weather these storms. And these And this is quite a small storm by that time scale. All right, all right, steady on. That's just too much. That's <laughs> there's probably <laughs> eighteen topics there that I could go off on tangents. Yeah. Now, okay, so that's interesting then that we potentially have this propensity to live hand to mouth. That that really perhaps we're taking a holiday, perhaps when we shouldn't necessarily be doing that. Uh, I'm I'm interested to know what you think about being sort of overly sensitive to the risks. If we're overly sensitive all the time, I'm conscious and that that potentially that we might feel the risks and it will stifle growth and prospecting. So curious to know about your thoughts about that psychological tendency. Okay. So three things to say. I hope I remember them all. Thing number one is that you talk, you just you, you mentioned that we, we spend it on holidays. We are way poorer than we think we are, or we should be way poorer than we actually are. Uh, people do spend money on holidays and they shouldn't. Um, they should be thinking more long term. I mean, at the most basic level, you know, the proportion of people who have a pension that they're actually going to be, of our generation who have a pension that they're actually going to be able to live on after 65 or 70 is tiny. Uh, I mean, just compared to our, our grandparents' generation, the extent to which we actually think about the future is awful. But but the bottom line is we are way poorer than we think we are. The, all companies of the world are way poorer than they think they think they are. Virgin Airlines is I don't care whether they're financially bankrupt, they're morally bankrupt, they're intellectually bankrupt. They've been operating a company that as an airline that doesn't have any money saved for the shocks which airlines experience like every three to five years, let alone every century. So that's the first thing is, is you're right. It is a desperate situation. We are, but we are poorer than we think we are. The second thing to say is that, uh, you said that that we'd, we'd never do anything. We'd, you know, we'd be kept in the state of stasis. And and there is an element of truth to that. There's two parts to this. Part number one is that we're poorer than we think we are because we should be holding more money back to account for risk. Part number two is that if you held 
money back to account for every risk, it's an infinite sum. It's a it's a really important principle that the number of things that can happen to us are actually infinite. And many of that infinite size of space are going to happen like once every, you know, 10,000, 100,000 million years. And I've just read a book, you know, which is calculating the, the, the chances of us be, uh, being killed by solar flares, by uh, gal- you know, black holes, galaxies imploding. I mean, these are very, very, very unlikely. But you cannot hold enough money to to survive all of these different shocks and impacts that are going to happen on a cosmic scale. And what does that mean? What that means is that everything ends. Okay, what are the two certainties in life, death and taxes? Well, you can live in Monaco and then your one certainty is death, right? Everything is going to end. You're going to die of something eventually. And it might be that your business goes bankrupt with coronavirus, or it might be that we will get sucked into a black hole. But everything is going to end. Uh, You know, I used to say in speeches, you know, one day the sun around which we revolve and depend on for life is going to uh, expand into a red giant and then collapse into a white dwarf and then, you know, create its own black hole. And a long time before that, shares in Coca-Cola will be worthless. Now, I didn't say that to the audience of Coca-Cola, but I should have done because all these businesses need to face the fact that all they're really trying to do is stay open as long as possible. They all think that they're invincible and, you know, and that they're going to last forever. And none of them are. And none of us are. Something will get you eventually. And that's really what the book The Black Swan was kind of about, is it doesn't matter how careful you are, doesn't matter how much you think uncertainty doesn't affect you, something will get you eventually. And it might be one of the normal things, but it might even if you insure yourself and indemnify yourself and mitigate all of the normal things, one of the extraordinary things will get you eventually. So that's the second thing, right? And that's the depressing message. But the third thing that counteracts that is that what I'm saying is that you can last as long as possible, but you people need to radically change their mindset. And this is, if you like, my big idea that I may or may not <laughs> have the energy one day to write into a book and to start properly taking to the world. But that 99% of businesses currently operate in the middle of the Gaussian bell curve, right? Like, like broadly speaking, we know what we know what income we're going to have next year. It's going to be 4% up on this year, right? And, and, and they still have this mentality of certainty and predictability and modeling. And even in the last 10 years, you know, since 2008, they're all VUCA. They're all about ambiguity. They're all about uncertainty. They're all about agility. But they're not really, they don't really run their businesses like that. If they run their businesses the way that I'm saying that people should, they would keep a lot more money back for the low frequency, high impact events, right? And they're much more common and impactful than we think we are. That's why we call them fat tails, okay? But also, they do a lot more in order to therefore compensate for that and make the profit that that would sacrifice they would actually be investing a lot more in the things that I have spent the last 15 years advocating that people do, which is once you open yourself up to uncertainty, you accept that unlikely things are much more likely to happen than you think they are. But uh, sorry, on the downside, but also on the upside. Okay, and you'd start investing much more in moonshots, long shots, call them what you will, uh, innovations um, uh, in your world, you know, uh, what's it called? Aggregate um, marginal gains. Um, most of which won't necessarily improve you by that much, but every now and again, you'll hit one, which gives you the edge, which gets you uh, onto the podium. And and that's the mentality that I'm trying to get businesses to move into, that you've got to insulate yourself more against the downside, but you've also got to open yourself more to the possibility that things will happen on the upside. And you cannot know which one that is. That's the nature of uncertainty. And that idea of pushing people radically into that space, people don't want to do it. There's massive psychological and cultural resistance to doing that. And that is a problem because that is how the world works, actually. Okay. Well, that's interesting then. So what I'm hearing is that if you do the due diligence, if you're saving for a rainy day, if you're taking that kind of prudent approach, covering off the major risks, not all the risks, that's not necessarily possible. But am I hearing then that that gives us the psychological stability and therefore potentially the confidence or maybe even the license to think, right, Let's go for it now. Let's really push and explore and and start to create with a little bit more freedom and a license to to innovate. 
Yeah, actually, you've taken it a step further than what I said. That everything you said there is absolutely true, and I agree with it. <clears throat> but that's that's that I I stopped short of saying that, I, and I and I think that is very important. That idea that it gives you the confidence and security and all the rest of it. I was actually presenting it more of a negative than a positive. What I was saying was that in order to insure yourself against those downsides, I mean sometimes literally, by the way, in the form of insurance. But as we've all seen in the last few weeks, don't trust insurance companies. You know, much better to make your own. Well, genuinely, much better to make your own mitigating uh, 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 preparations. Than, than get insurance, right? Because insurance is designed not to pay out. But in order, once you've done that, there's going to be a cost to that, whether it's paying insurance companies or, or or buying a panic room, right? And therefore, you need to compensate for the for the cost of that. And therefore, you are going to have to invest in the, the, the moonshots and the long shots because the work that I've been doing for the last 15 years shows at a mathematical level how and why those things actually create greater ROI. Because it's because it's all about ROI. It's all about the return that you get on these resources, and you'll get massive return on the downside allocations at times like this. Okay, um, because you're prepared for them. I mean, as much as I pretty much hate British Airways, you, they, they've got billions saved to to weather these storms. You know, good on them. It is a well-run company from that point of view, and they may survive this where Virgin won't. Um, but in order to pay for that allocation of cash sitting doing nothing, if you want to make the same profit that you made last year, you need you need another route. And the other route that I'm saying is because of the way uncertainty works, yes, those down things can happen, but yes, those upsides can happen as well. And you should start ident- identifying and investing in them. And then to incorporate your point, because you've got some security and certainty that that, in, that, uh, that insurance against the downside gives you actually allows you to play about with those a little bit more. That's great. Okay, so are we into sort of that sweet spot of economics of decision making then, where you're you're getting your order and your priority and sorting the risks and opportunities, and once you're doing that, you're able to take action, almost like a belt and braces approach around what you need to cover off. Is, is that what we're referring to here? Excuse my ignorance around this whole particular area. No, and and to be honest with you, you know, I'm not um, I'm not a business strategist in in that sense i'm someone who's worked with businesses for 15 years i mean over a thousand businesses now from the biggest to the smallest i i think the the observation is that people understand to greater or more often lesser extent these basic premises but they don't understand the extent to which uh this needs to happen um because again what, as you know, that you said you literally introduced me as an expert in uncertainty, the mindset shift that needs to happen is resource allocation from a standpoint of predictability and certainty towards a standpoint of uncertainty. And that means downsides are more likely, but upsides are more likely as well. And if I can just make a, a, a little tweak of a, uh, of a change to, to something that you said, um, that that insulation against downside, <clears throat> it's not so much that we know what those downsides are. It's more about in building a sense of adaptability and flexibility. So, for example, you know, I haven't done much more in the last 10 years of my life than just save a pot of money um, and genuinely make sure it's in bank accounts with, you know, I get some government insurance and, and that kind of thing. But 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 if a company has a pot of money and a location to meet, you know, in the in the face of a physical threat like earthquake or what have you, you need to have protocols that are um, what am I trying to say that are resistant to whatever's going to happen, because the principle of the black swan is you don't know exactly what it's going to be. Do you know what I mean? You can drill five different emergency drills in the face of five different catastrophic events. But you can be guaranteed that the actual catastrophic event will prevent those drills from happening. So what you have to have is flexibility that gives you the ability to flex and adapt in the face of them. So why don't we do this then? Why why don't we have this longer term thinking? Is it inadequate education or is it just simple blind thinking? Or do we have an, like a natural tendency to sort of live in the now rather than be thinking about a, building a future that's beyond our lifetime? Yeah, I think, it's, uh, I think it's the latter. I mean, so one point and then a general point. The specific point is that I spent three years as a, um, as a commentator on poker TV shows between 2005 and actually 2009. And what was very interesting was to see a whole generation, an audience, you know, as indicated by their emails, move, like literally 
psychologically move from a standpoint standpoint of short-term to long-term thinking. So, that, so at the beginning of that period, they would write in going, I had a losing session last night. What's wrong with my play? And we would <laughs> give a variety of answers that would be an improvisation of uh, not a clue. Um, because you know, that one session is completely irrelevant. You need six months of data, and then we need to see various different aspects of your play to be able to drill down in and understand where the where the weaknesses are. And then people would move to a place where they would understand that six months became statistically significant. And the reason why, although poker is experiencing a little uh, online poker is experiencing a resurgence in in the face of coronavirus, but the reason why uh, you know poker online poker is basically over before that is because people after 10 years of playing, 15 years of playing, saw that their bank rolls were going down. Like they could have a winning evening or a winning week or a winning month. But once you've got 10 years where all you see is deposits out of your bank account, people realized that in the long term, then the vast majority of people's money was going down. And so the fish, the donators, uh, the losers left the game slowly but surely. So, so they gradually understood. And that's what's happening with climate change, right? Like, you know, in the 70s and 80s, this tiny minority, and then you can see the lines definitely going up. And then, you know, even the most short term and climate denying of us can see that our summers are hotter and the, and the, the world is warming because we experience this long term change. Now, why? I think is because we're hardwired. This is the way that I put it. It's quite a controversial way if you're religious, but the way that I put it is because mankind is a, is a species mid-evolution. I mean, I don't hold that evolution is finished, but even if you do, it, we're still we're not some finished version. We weren't created literally by God in His own image. We've slowly evolved, and what happened was about 1.8 million years ago, we experienced something that was almost unique in the animal kingdom. Elephants had it a bit, dolphins a bit, chimpanzees a bit, which was we started thinking constructively about the future. Your, your dog never goes, if I catch the ball on Monday and catch the ball on Tuesday, I'm going to be much better at it by Thursday. Um, they don't think and plan. And the human brain is unique in the idea that it does. It does that. But it doesn't do it very well because we're mid-evolution. So we have these long-term plans but we still think in terms of very short-term goals. You may have a Q1 sales target, but you still get pissed off if you pick up the phone and someone says no to you. If our brains worked in harmony with themselves almost and with the, 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 the limits that we impose upon ourselves, we wouldn't care about someone saying no to us because we know that we need a thousand no's in order to get 500 yeses or whatever the ratio is um, to f fulfill our long-term goal. So we're, we're, we're caught in two places and that we're a species that has these uniquely long-term goals. We need to say, for our retirement but at the same time we want to buy a new car and those two things tear at us so we're imperfect we're an imperfect species because we weren't created we're just evolving mm, all right that's interesting so i suppose that that long arc of the experience that we've been through as humans that that magnitude of human experience is that we have had to live hand to mouth that that we hunt today for tonight we we're growing crops because we're seeking a meal that we can consume literally over the next 24 hours, rather than perhaps building the village. That almost feels like a recent addition to our economics, our decision-making, and maybe our way of life. Yes, agreed, totally. Um, and, and people, you know, the people at the highest levels wrestle with this. If any of us feel like I want to lose weight, but I really want a McDonald's, you know, don't despair. Jack Welsh says in, in Straight From The Gut, um, his account of his time in charge of uh, General Electric turning into the biggest company on the planet. You know, he says when he when he applied for the job, he wrote a letter to the board saying um, the question of short term versus long term resource allocation is going to define my um, my, uh, you know, chief executiveship. And he wrote subsequently, he said he couldn't have understood then the extent to which that was actually true. So the, the heart at the heart of my work of, of risk and decision making is getting to the real heart of that question and that prioritization. And so we're all in this together. All right. So we have gone full blast straight into the topic, really. And and I haven't actually given you an opportunity to, to give yourself your introduction, um, <laughs> but because that is an indulgence in itself. So I, I want you to share with the audience. I know you've given this probably a thousand times as a speaker. I'm curious to know whether you actually still enjoy saying what you've been through 
Um, but yeah, please go and give us your introduction. Cool. Uh, so I started off my working life, as you know, as an actor in the first two series of Geordie Teen Soap Biker Grove. Uh, yes, with Anton Deck, as uh, everyone is collectively thinking. And uh, of course, our careers went in slightly different directions, didn't they? They went on to be, you know, the two most famous and successful people in media today. And I'm talking to you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I... Uh, what did I do? I went to Cambridge, uh, ostensibly to study economics, but really to do the footlights and all of that. Very talented generation. Rob Webb, David Mitchell, uh, Olivia Coleman, all close personal friends of mine. And, um, and they went on to be the most famous and successful people in their uh, generation of media. And I'm still talking to you. And I uh, left. Uh, I'd actually had my first two screenplays produced by Film 4 and Columbia TriStar before I'd graduated from Cambridge. So at that point, actually, they were nothing. And I was the big famous one. And um, and then about two, three years after leaving Cambridge, I had my, my life hadn't really progressed. No, no more films had be, been made. And I actually felt very unhappy, a bit of a failure. And I felt that I needed to do something to kind of reinvigorate a my you know sort of uh, thirst for life but b um get out of the media world really because all i knew was was having been to school university and working in the film industry so as you know i went to las vegas and became a professional poker player we're now talking about the year 2000 did that for two and a half years came back to this country set up a video production company in the northeast of england ran that for two and a half years realized that playing poker and running a business were much more similar worlds than one might think and started in about 2004, five to to speak about that and to and to relate the two to each other, um, which I started off doing in quite a sort of clunky way, like this is poker, this is business, this is how the two relate, and then it became <clears throat> hopefully more refined and more educated and more thought through, which is really what you're doing when you're playing poker is quite a pure example of decision making because what is decision making it's defined by harvard business school as the allocation they say commitment but allocation of scarce resources under uncertainty so that's what you do when you're playing poker with the intention of creating or indeed maximizing your return on that investment <clears throat> so that's what you're doing when you play when you play poker it's what you do when you run a business it's actually what you're doing as a human being as a human being we're all doing it right now you and I are recording this podcast, other people are listening to it, we're allocating our scarce resource, in this case, time, energy, commitment, passion, enthusiasm um, to something. In a world of uncertainty, uh, this could get even worse in the next 25 minutes, who knows, um, but with the intention, the desire to create a return on that investment. And whether you carry on listening or turn it off will be a perception of, guess what, your thinking about the future. So that's what we're doing in poker. We're constantly thinking about how this hand is going to turn out and it could be lots of different ways. And that's the brilliance of poker is that <clears throat> whereas in life um, we have narratives and we have expertise and we have judgment and we have so-called, you know, experts on the television and writing books who tell us what the future is going to be and why in poker it doesn't matter. There is no story. There is no uh, best guess. The next card could be the ace of spades or the five of diamonds and the greatest poker player who ever played the game can't give you a better idea than you have and so you're making these resource allocation decisions in a world of obvious avert and undeniable uncertainty and therefore you have to think probabilistically which is what is all, all this is really about and was the best place to sort of start if you like you have to understand that anything that can happen will happen at some point um, and you have to work in accordance with those rules and to bring us right back to the beginning of this conversation business broadly speaking doesn't and the coronavirus, like the financial crisis, will be another lesson in this idea that if something can happen, then it will happen at some point. And if your business model doesn't take account of that, then it's flawed. OK, I'm keen to get into poker and the mechanics of how you play. And you blasted through that uh, biog, uh, actor, producer, film director, speaker, company owner, poker player as well. Um, also, given what you've talked about uh, in reference to longer term thinking, it sounds like you got you got bored. <laughs> Where's the longer term thinking in this? So, I mean, so the first thing is, the first thing is I haven't been a speaker for, for 15 years now. In fact, yeah, yeah, yeah OK, fair enough. Yeah, yeah OK. It, it, even in about, I think it was about 2009, I did this speech and I was, you know, I'm saying, come on, folks, take risk. And this guy came up to me at the end of it. He said, why should, it was in Middlesbrough, he said, why should we listen to you? You're telling us to take risk, but you've been doing this for four years now. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and he was all right. Must, like You must have had a... 
an instinct then. You must have wanted to follow your nose. The jump from film director to poker player, I mean, you obviously must have been playing it then, but but that willingness to go for it, has that always been there for you? Yeah. Yeah, do you know what? There was actually, I can cite something very specific which someone said to me, and I'm, I'm really glad they did, because, I, because it, I, I was 10 years in the film industry from the age of 16 to 26 until 1999. And um, my agent said to me, he knew that I was disillusioned with it all. And he said, he said, you know what my dad said to me? He said, it doesn't matter what you're doing before you're 30, as long as you're doing something. And um, it just stuck with me so much because I I'd, I'd basically stopped. Like I just, you know, I just wasn't working. I just hated it. And so I thought, oh, I want to do something. And then the actual, you know, what happened at prosaic level was me and my buddy used to go to Las Vegas every six months. We used to play blackjack and roulette, which just to be clear is gambling. You're going to lose your money in the long run. doesn't matter what you do. You can count cards in blackjack, but in roulette, you are definitely going to lose. Um, and, uh, and then he ventured into the poker room and I followed him. This was the summer of 99 and it was absolutely fascinating. We played for 42 hours nonstop and we nearly missed our plane home. And I thought, this is interesting. I, I understand you can make a living at this because, uh, because economics was my jam and poker is it's just economics. And uh, on the plane home, I said to my buddy, I said, I'm going to do that. And he said, no, don't be stupid. I said, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do it forever. People say, why did you stop playing poker? Well, because I was never going to do it forever. But I thought I'd do it for about six months, maybe a year, ended up doing it for two and a half years. Actually, six months before I went back out there in January 2000. And um, yeah, and that's how all that happened. But you're right, there was a lot of chopping and changing within that. But most of that chopping and changing before that and after that was somewhere in the media industry. And for me, the common thread through all of it, even the economics, is that I'm fascinated by people. And so, you know, whether you're writing a screenplay about what people do or you're um, in terms of economics studying the behavior of people, for me, that is that is always that's the same thing. In fact, genuinely, 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 if you think about story, Robert McKee, when he talks about story is what people are doing is answering the question of how to overcome obstacles to achieve goals. And so these store early stories would have been told around the campfire and elders would have been using that <clears throat> structure of narrative to inform younger people how to achieve certain things, how to catch an animal when it keeps running away from you or attacks you, et cetera. And, and that is basically decision-making. So there is a massive, you know, parallel connection between the construct of, of story and all decision-making, which is about, you know, trying to achieve goals through, through return on investment. Okay. So you said there, that's interesting. You, you referenced, this is my jam. What, what was it about that? What, what did you want to find more about? Was it the craft? Was it pursuing this as an option for income or was it about learning about yourself? So when you're in the film industry, uh, there is a lot of uh, luck and I need to define luck really for that to make sense in this context. So hang on to your hats. <laughs> luck. <laughs> no, seriously. seriously. Okay. Because okay, okay. there's a lot of crap talked about luck. Do you believe in luck? Uh, luck is a thing. There are people who will die having been luckier than you and people who have been unluckier than you. And the only thing I can say is that the vast majority of people listening to this podcast will have been in the top 0.01% of humans by luck, right? You know, they've got food in their belly. Someone loves them, blah, blah, blah. Um, luck is your short-term deviation from your long-term expectation as a result of that which you cannot control. So if you toss a coin 10 times, if you got it right all 10 times, would you have been skillful? Are you good at guessing the toss of a coin? No, you'll have just been lucky because what's your expectation is to get it right five times, right? Because 50-50. So, but your short-term deviation from your long-term expectation means that you've got a bit of luck in that process. If you toss the coin a million times, actually, interestingly, you'll be a lot more than five tosses away from half a million correct, but proportionately, you're going to approximate closer and closer to 50%. That's called the law of large numbers. Okay. And that's where luck, quote unquote, evens out. But actually, because the numbers get bigger as a deviation, you're becoming more and more lucky or unlucky. But luck is your short-term deviation from your long-term expectation as a result of that, which you cannot control. So in the film industry, what that means is that if you wear the right clothes and you go to the right parties and you have the right agent or you meet the right person on the right day or the right script gets picked up by the right person, that is the difference between making it and not making it. And although those things break even over the course of 50 years, give you an, I'll give you an example, Olivia Coleman, I said on the day that she walked into my audition room in September 1993, I said she was, I said she was going to be the next Julie Walters, and she is, but it took 25 years more 
for that to happen, right? She was unlucky, actually. She has more talent than anyone else I've ever worked with in any field ever. It actually took time for that to come out. Now she is acknowledged as the greatest actress on the planet. Meryl Streep said she's the greatest natural actress she's ever seen. She spent a lot of time unemployed. So she actually had short-term negative deviation from a long-term expectation because Sasha Baron Cohen, for example, you know, he found his right character very quickly. Where is this going? In poker, although people see it as a game of luck, I understand why that is, blah, blah, blah. Actually, it's a perfect meritocracy because the short term in poker when you're playing a cash game is roughly about six months of play or about 100,000 hands. And that is a long time. But if that does feel like a long time, try life. There are two and a half million possible five card hand combinations. You know, in life, there are a lot more permutations and combinations of events than that. And so in poker, over the course of six months, you are going to be paid according to the quality of decisions that you make. It doesn't matter what clothes you wear or what you say to the dealer, as long as it's decent, um, you know, or what parties you go to. None of that matters. You are paid your worth. And I just thought this is a perfect meritocracy and I want to give it a go. Okay, so it sounds like there's like a purity to the craft. You get back what you put in. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. Yeah. You're just rewarded for, yeah, the quality of what you're doing. And then uh, so some, it's the sum total, let's not get too far into this debate, but it's the sum total of your natural talent times, you know, the practice and effort that you put in. Okay. So perhaps my assumption there is wrongly placed around the, the craft of reading people, perhaps against the idea of, of playing the probabilities yeah, totally. I mean, look, don't, don't get me wrong. Reading people is an aspect of poker. But uh, as a little tip here, folks, if ever you're sitting down at a poker table with someone who says, play the man, not the cards, they don't really know about poker. <laughs> right? That's a great tell for someone who's watched a Bond movie but doesn't really understand poker. You'll never hear a professional poker player say, play the man, not the cards. The cards are absolutely crucial. Play the man if you know that you can get him to fold. But the occasions that that's going to happen are very, very small. Um, and if he doesn't fold, what do you got? you've got your cards. And if you've got 7-4, it's still 7-4. So uh, poker is a game of maths and psychology, but in the calculation that is mathematical, there is a probability, and the probability is a product of a number of things, some of which are psychological. So if you have to pick one skill to be good at with poker, it's definitely the maths. If you can be good at both, that's great. But that's why you know, all the champions of poker in the 70s and 80s were innumerate um, uh, great readers of people from Texas. And they literally all got beaten when people with PhDs in statistics from Stanford started coming into the game. And then in the last seven, eight, nine, ten years, you've got savants who are good at both. Um, and they're the people that dominate. But yeah, poker is much more a game of maths and psychology. It's a mis misconception. Not then the classic hero archetype that that Muhammad Ali who's either psyching the opponent out before they get in the ring or or even manoeuvring them to make that knockout punch. This is more like the Nick Faldos of the world, that steely psychology that focusing on playing their game and nothing else and not getting hijacked by the emotions in the moment. Grinding it out. So listen, we're generalizing. Okay, so uh, let's pick a try and pick an analogy. Um, you've already picked one, but let me let me go for this one. It's the difference between a team that wins the league and a team that wins a cup. A team that wins a cup needs to be a flair team that can produce the goods on six games. A team that win the league needs to grind it out over the course of thirty-eight. Um, and most of poker is grinding out over the course of thirty-eight. And some occasionally poker is about producing that moment of flair that uh the films are written about but broadly speaking you know if we if if we turn genuinely to the world of poker and not what can we take from poker and apply to life if we just think about poker almost everything that people think they know about poker from films and books is wrong almost everything <laughs> right okay films right um, that gives me an excuse then so that rich biography that you described you missed out the tangent about being the oh yeah the <laughs> casino royale of poker advisor so what what was it there because you referenced a sort of superficial view creating a scene or a tension in the film what was your role in advising the bond movie was it was it to try and make it look some sort of legitimate scene yeah 
I like how you printed that question, Steve. So to put aside the interesting stuff about poker and theory, just tell us about James Bond, which is yeah, what most yeah, people do. What do you do? So the first thing is I was brought in by another guy who's actually the guy you'll see on the credits. His name is Dr. Tom Sambrook. He was my co-presenter on Poker Night Live. And um, I won't bore you with a long story as to why he brought me in. But he brought me in. And uh, so we did it together or we, we split duties, let's say. And so um, the first job, which was mainly him, was to consult on the script and to make sure the script made sense. That was that is like literally does this make sense from a poker point of view? Don't tell us that it's exciting or boring or anything like that. That's not your job. But just does it make sense from a poker point of view? And the one big change that Tom had to make was. They actually had James Bond calling and then he lost the hand and he turned to the people and said, I was trying to bluff him. It's like you can't bluff him if you're calling. So that was quite a big change. That's how bad it was initially. And then I (laughs) came in at the stage of rehearsal. So I rehearsed the actors. Uh, Both Tom and I had acting experience. So we were both picked as as, as people who, who had that foot in both worlds. They did not bring me in as someone who wrote films. I want to make this completely clear. I was under no illusion that they did. Um, we did talk about the the finale, you know, where obviously someone has a flush and then someone has a full house and then someone has a four of a kind, I think. I can't remember exactly. And then and then James Bond turns over the, the straight flush. Um, and this is not how I mean, don't get me wrong. This is sometimes, you know, there are, there are occasionally there are hands like that in poker. They're they're remarkably rare. Um, but but everything will happen um, sometimes according to its probability. But it's not how most, you know, great hands in, in poker play out in reality. It's how uh, TV hands go and, and, and how it's shown in films. And we, we said that, you know, we said, like, you can win the world championships with ace high, you know. And they said, yeah, but that's not very dramatic. And we were like, no, nah, it's actually more dramatic. Like, if you really understand poker, it's much more dramatic that someone wins <laughs> with ace queen. And the other guy has ace jack. That's way more dramatic than someone having a straight flush, which is obviously going to win. Um so, but they, so they weren't interested in our thoughts on on how dramatic something was. It was just like, is this realistic? Does this does this make sense? You know, is it is it authentic? And then again, of course, you know, like we were we were often overruled, and that was completely fine. They're making a hundred million dollar movie. They're not interested in um, realism, except that the interesting thing was that uh, Bond films are executive produced by a guy called Michael. Oh, I forget his name. Michael, um, I will say Michael Lewis, and it's not Michael Lewis. It'll come to me. And uh, he's Cubby Broccoli's stepson, Albert R. Broccoli's stepson, executive producer. And Michael was a poker player. And this precipitated a really funny conversation in the back of his limo once. He gave me a lift back to the hotel after a day of rehearsals. And it was a conversation in which he would excitedly ask me about hands of poker and how do you play ace-queen and this kind of thing. And I would answer his question, then excitedly ask him a question about Moonraker. <laughs> <laughs> our questions never met like we just weren't interested in the same things at all and he does exactly the same with bill gates as i as i recall which is um he like he's you know he's a millionaire many times over but he sits playing in this crummy little three six game uh, near his house in california um which is what bill gates did you know with billions in the bank he played in the three six game in the mirage i think and um and uh, and so he was he was the guy who had the idea to option Casino Royale because he was the guy who was aware that the poker boom was happening. And I think in the book, it's a baccarat game. And he said, we'll make it a poker game. And so the boss man was very keen that the poker was authentic. So without us sort of running to headmaster and telling tales, it was just always the case that making the poker look realistic was actually quite important. OK, so you've got a middle ground there. So it's got to be realistic, but it can't be completely delusional. And that's my memory of watching the film. That it wasn't just the classic sort of aces everywhere or royal flush. It all just look, happens to yeah. have fallen all onto the, the table there. It was five, six, eights, I seem to remember. Yeah. And, but it was definitely more sexy than it just coming down to a pair. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, which is my memory, really, of of playing poker. It, but it just doesn't necessarily come down to the the mundane result of a, of a small game. No, listen, um, it, it, uh, there are uh, there are two films that that marked a turning point in poker on film. So uh, uh, the first one is Rounders, right, which was released in two thousand, I think, which is Edward Norton and uh, is it Matt Damon? Yeah, Matt Damon. And Rounders was actually written by two. Uh, former professional poker players who've gone on to be very successful screenwriters. Um, and that was the first film, I think, to depict, te- first 
film of any note to depict Texas Hold'em properly, before which everyone was depicting draw, and still sometimes even today, God knows how they can still do that, but uh, draw hasn't been played properly, you know, since the 1950s. And um, and then Casino Royale, which, you know, to its credit was a $100 million movie, which would normally get these things very wrong. But again, because of Michael uh, Wilson, Michael G. Wilson, um, they uh, they wanted to get it right. And those two films together changed the way that poker was depicted on film. So, so you're absolutely right. It did. It had a foot in each camp. It was a little bit silly and a little bit corny. But at the same time, it was uh, quite radical in, in that. I think they went so far as to, I think it goes. They were, you could go so far as to say that if you came to that film and you didn't understand poker, then you wouldn't exactly understand what was going on. And that's quite rare for a hundred million dollar movie. Like it's actually quite an esoteric depiction of poker, as far as you could push it within that kind of budget. Okay, well, except the fact that he got defibbed in the middle of the game. <laughs> Oh, I love that bit. I, lo- I love the way that Bond always has the right gadget. And people used to ask me, people used to blame me for those kind of decisions to the point that I literally in my speeches used to say, it wasn't my decision that James Bond gets you know, Royal Flush and the most uh, lucrative hand of poker ever played. It wasn't my decision that, you know, he has a defibrillator at exactly the right point in the in the game. I mean, it's Bond. It's all silly. And I never quite understand why. I actually stopped slagging Bond off in my speeches because some people take it really seriously, right? Like you're really alienating some of your audience if you do this. But I am, as someone who's now played a part in a Bond movie, like really genuinely mystified by the amount of kudos and credibility these stupid stories get. I mean, the way that people write about Oh God! See, I don't even know the name. But what's the what's the name of the the Daniel Craig thing where he takes Judy Dench up to the house in Scotland? I mean, that is a silly, silly, silly yeah, it's a silly film. Like the scene with the you know, the um, the London tube train. Like James Bond has to get off at exactly the right stop for this guy's master plan to work as a tube train comes through the ceiling. And yet, people talk about it as if it's like. Citizen Kane 2. Isn't that part of it, though, that you're, well, I suppose your responsibility and working on the film, but but equally to the audience, is that you're balancing the reality with the escapism that a film can create, that you can't just be watching a Bond movie and be thinking, no, that was a, that was a dull game to watch. You've, you've got a responsibility to help produce an effect, which is, is creating that sense of, it, it washes people away from reality, that escapism aspect. Uh, I'm fine with all of that. We're getting into film criticism now. I am fine with all of that. My, a lot of my favourite films are very silly films. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I absolutely adore silly action movies, but I don't then think that they should be talked about, you know, they shouldn't then be talked about as high art. But at the end of the day, they are silly action movies. It's not even as well directed as, a you know, a Terminator 2 or something. Um you're, you're, you're right. Yeah, there's, there's more than a place in the world for, for you know, silly plots that do exactly what you've just said there and wash over people without, you know, interfering too much. I just don't quite understand why Bond gets the kudos that it gets beyond the sort of 50, unique, unique, unique 55, 60 year lifespan. OK, well, th- thank you for indulging me in that tangent. So back to poker then. How do you get good at poker? So, I mean, you know, Matthew Saeed's bounce aside, I think you absolutely need certain natural talents. I, I personally am the belief that some of these things are genetic. I'm, you're a much better person to ask about this than me, but let's put a pin in that for now. Um, those natural talents are uh, a degree of patience, um, discipline. Um, you've got to be able to wait. Uh We'll go back to um, mathematical skills. And again, they can they can be developed, certainly if you start very young. Um, and and then this ability, as, as I say, that uh, that that probability reading, which is part of the calculation, but is a product of your ability to read people. But what is your ability to read people? I don't know. Maybe there's a certain element of that that is instinctual, not not intuitive, but instinctual as in hardwired. But broadly speaking, it's pattern recognition. Um, you know, that's why what happened in about 2010, 2012 was you had these kids who were like 22, but because of online poker and for people who don't play poker, what you can do in online poker is play 10 games at the same time on your multiple TV screens. And you're playing 120 hands an hour in each one instead of about 28 hands per hour. And so kids at 22 suddenly had as much experience as Doyle Brunson had by the age of, you know, 75 in terms of literally hands of poker. 
So their levels of pattern recognition, especially aided by what are called heads-up displays, pieces of software that are reading, literally crunching large volumes of data. Um, and uh, and they were making great decisions. And 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 so now what do you have? I think this is, this is a relatively interesting way into that idea of how do you get good at it. So the guy that created a program called Snowy for backgammon, which is you can think about backgammon as being like poker with the cards up. There's no secret part to backgammon. There's no uncertainty. Or there's no secret part to it, but the uncertainty is the roll of the dice. But what that means is that you can crunch the numbers. Snowy could crunch numbers and produce a perfect play. In other words, of all the different you know combinations that the next guy and you and the next guy and you and the next guy and you could roll in terms of the dice, there is a perfect play in this situation. And the guy that created Snowy, who was also a keen poker player, tried to write a program to beat the best players at poker, and he couldn't do it. He couldn't write it. And so what he did was he just used neural networks. We just started off with a blank sheet and uh, there's still his software is out there, but it's now been superseded, I think, by other programs with more efficient AI. And they've now played trillions of hands of poker and the best computer can now beat the best human player as it is at chess, but for different reasons. Um, because it's played trillions of hands of poker. It's just, it's, it's noted in trillions and trillions of patterns and so it's assessment, it's reading of the way in which its opponent is likely to play using game theoretics is optimal. So how do you get good at it? You play, the answer is, you play trillions of hands of poker and you note and understand and recognize the patterns. And so your reading of the probability is perfect and the calculation that you put that into is perfect. And that's how you play perfect poker. And so what was the difference there? What was built into the programming and the AI? And I'm second guessing here, but you know, if you're just playing the probabilities, you might not actually play the game because I'm guessing that there are irrationalities built into the game. So under, my, you know, my limited understanding of game theory is that you're making a choice based on the choice of others. And so if you don't factor into the realities of the real game, then you're ignoring how to win it. Yeah, exactly that. The difference between the two programs is quite simple to explain in that the program that the Snowy creator first tried to devise had algorithms, right? Like he tried to teach a computer how to play poker. Okay, and the way to learn how to play poker was to come to it with no preconceptions at all. Oh, and by the way, just for all the people who say play the man, not the cards, none of this involves an ounce of body language, right? Like you're not looking at people dilation or the way they hold their Oreo cookie. Um, <laughs> the way to learn how to play poker is just to play. That's a rounded reference. It's not it's completely out of the blue. Oh, right. um, okay. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I watched the yeah. film. I had no context <laughs> there. It's a reference to the way John Malkovich holds his Oreo cookie in the final scene of Rounders. Um, but the way to learn how to play poker is you just play like literally trillions of hands of poker, so more poker than people can play in their lifetimes, and you learn the likelihood and probability of people doing certain things in certain situations. And the way the reason those machines uh, weren't good at first, when the Snowy guy first devised his machine, it could be beaten by the best poker players, because what the best poker players did was they understood that the machine had played certain people in certain contexts and certain situations, and so they just subverted that. All right, so if you subvert dominant ideology in any given situation then you can you can screw up people's perceptions of the way that someone's going to do something but once it's played trillions and trillions of hands and it's and it's realized all the let's say potential is it infinite i don't know but potential ways that people could possibly play and subvert it's very quickly categorizing you understanding your patterns and that is the way that you play uh perfect poker so that's how you get good at poker so how do you get to carnegie hall practice Right. So it's that experience that counts. So uh, almost probably the journey that you've gone on to get to the destination is just as important as to as to the destination that you arrive at. I'm thinking about the TED talk that I remember watching you deliver and, and trying to recall this accurately. So forgive me, but you're talking about people predicting the future. And if I'm not mistaken, it was the less sure you are, then the more accurate the prediction. It is right, but let's caveat it quickly. But go on, because you're going to ask a question based on it. Well, I suppose it's in terms of that function around recognising the uncertainty that you hold, that if you're dealing in absolutes then, then and saying this is the way it needs to be done, then you're telling the machine what to do. But if you're letting the machine learn and grow organically, that, that has 
that is accepting of the importance of technical and personal and contextual learning, then it's going to be far more complete and holistic. Yes. So I see what you've done here, Steve. You've just brilliantly started off the conversation in a place and now we're going to end it in the same place. It's genius. Um, I'm, I'm full of awe for the way that you've done this. <laughs> I don't know whether because... we're there yet. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> don't worry, we are. we are. You've done it without even knowing it. Because you brought us back to the place of uncertainty. So, so you're right. In my, in my presentation, I quote what is now a seminal study by Tetlock. And I'm quite annoyed about that because when I used to present it 10 years ago, it was quite, ooh, that's new. And now it's like, you know, every, every book will quote Tetlock. And well, like take some credit for it. Just relax, relax. I did. It, I, did I did. I was evangelist 10 years ago. And um, so look, what does it say? It says, um, they asked 284 world experts over the course of 20 years, uh, 27,450 questions about what the future would hold, right? And they gave them very simple outcome answers for them to pick. So it wasn't like pick from anything, right? One, two, or three. And uh, over the course of that period of time, taken as a whole, taken as a whole, these experts, world experts, were no better than average, right? Like literally, you could have thrown a dart at a dartboard or asked an eight-year-old child, okay? So much for experts. But some of those experts were much better than average, and some of those experts were much less good than average. Okay, that's how they evened out. And so Tetlock was concerned with understanding well, why, why, what were the qualities of the people who were much better? And he calls these people super forecasters. And now there's this huge thing of, oh, are you a super forecaster? I met one at a party. And uh, super forecasters have a lot of different qualities. They're open minded, right? They want as much data and information as possible, but they don't kid themselves into thinking that all of that data gives them the right answer. And as you say, the correlation between their accuracy and the confidence that they had each time in their guess is negative. That is, the less sure they were, the more likely they were to be right. But crucially, that sounds counterintuitive. It absolutely isn't. Because this wasn't a third party going, that person's an idiot. Don't listen to them. Right. And then them getting it right surprised me. This was them saying either I, I actually I really think I know this. Or, mm, I don't know, but this is my best guess, right? And the I don't know, but this is my best guess is because those people thought that predicting the future was difficult because, this is where we come back to stage one, the world is uncertain, okay? they Like red-faced, you know, experts on Fox News go, trust me, the answer, on the American accent, trust me, the answer is this, you know, Trump should do this. And they don't know what's going to happen in the future because they are deluded into thinking that there is one future and that they, mighty of mightiest, are, are blessed with that answer Okay, because they know everything. And actually, knowledge in all its different forms comes from humility of the quest, understanding that you know nothing and that you're just trying to do your best. Okay, So these people that had the lower confidence in their guess their low confidence led to a greater desire to know and understand which which led to the quest to more and more understanding of information and even then understanding that the reality is that they can't know everything and so therefore by definition these people were better at best guess in the future um and that's stage one of what i was saying in this conversation which is that if you run your business or your life thinking that you know what the future is and it's roughly going to be this, which is obviously going to be the horse that's the favorite, right? It's going to be the top of the bell curve. Then you'll get it right, you know, a significant number of times and you'll delude yourself into thinking that you know what the future is going to be. Like Joe Biden's going to be the next president of the United States. Why? Because all the polls say so. It doesn't matter. He's, there's a probability. Let's say it's 60%. You could know something that maybe it's 3% because you, you know how Vladimir Putin's going to fix it, all right? there's an infinite amount of knowledge that you can have. And that's why there's an infinite number of things that can happen and only a finite number of things that will. And just because the way that something happens to happen in the eventuality of it doesn't mean to say that that's the way that it was destined to happen. And so if we relate all of this back to our, our poker player and uh, the event of coronavirus, and the concept of the black swans is for that um, machine, for that program, that AI concept to truly understand how poker works it needs to start understanding that the game extends beyond the boundaries of the game itself this is what nassim nicholas Taleb calls the um the uh, ludic fallacy okay we've just seen an example of it haven't we in terms of the premiership right who's going to win the premiership liverpool no because a viral pandemic is going to bring the world to its knees oh didn't foresee that who's going to win this hand of poker this guy no 
because what's going to happen in the middle of the hand is the guy's going to burst in with a gun and take all the money off the table. Or what's going to happen in the middle of the hand is that the FBI is going to close all websites in America that offer poker and you're going to find out you only have 4% of your deposits in their safe. Um, black swans are all the things that can actually happen, not just the things that the rules say might happen. And that's why ultimately 99.9% of all financial models that govern your pension and the stock markets and everything are just wrong. They're just wrong. They just work 99.9% of the time. And so they're good enough. And so people go with them. But 0.1% of the time, you know, the world is going to be told to stay indoors. 0.01% of the time, you know, banks are going to be bankrupt. 0.01% of the time, something's going to happen that means that your best laid plans are going to go wrong. And you need to, if you want to live your life and survive those things, then you need to have the wherewithal and the savings and the understanding that allow you to survive those things. And in order to counteract that, you therefore also need to be investing in the upside things because whilst things can go very wrong unexpectedly, things can also go incredibly right unexpectedly. And you need to be in a position to capitalize on those as well. And that's what risk management is really about. Okay, so I'm hearing there the Dunning-Kruger effect. I'm, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with that, but the relationship between experience and confidence, so, so that there's a spike in, in confidence at low experience uh, where you're delusional, but ultimately your, your confidence doesn't necessarily get back up to the level it perhaps should do with increasing experience primarily because it's probably infused with all of those contextual um, interpersonal aspects of how you deliver what you deliver. You're aware of all the things that you're aware of all the things that you don't know. And you're aware that the more that you learn, the more that you realize that there is to learn and the less confident that you feel in any guess that you can make. Because whilst it's better than the stupid person's guess, you are aware that it can never be perfect. Brilliant, Casper. Been a pleasure talking to you as ever. I could listen to you all day. I'm going to go and review my pension now and uh, and convert my <laughs> shed into a panic room. Look, uh, thank you so much. And thank you for auditioning uh, Olivia Coleman. Yeah, man. That was my big thing. That's what I did. Yeah, I gave you her. So cool. All right, buddy. It's been a pleasure. Casper, absolutely awesome to catch up with you. Take care. You can follow Casper on LinkedIn. He's on linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Casper Berry. And you can visit his website, casperberry.com. You can follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. Supporting Champions is also on LinkedIn, so you can follow our company page for the latest updates. You can also join our Facebook group site, Performance People, and the links are all in the show notes. 